are continuing on in our series uh, through the book of Hebrews called Jesus Is. And tonight we're talking about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. And the topic is that Jesus is full of grace. Now, if you were here again with us last week, you know we were talking about the Father's love and the Father disciplining his children. And the fact that God disciplines his children isn't that hard for most of us to grasp. But what the context of that discipline was, which was persecution, hardship, the context is what we have trouble with. Is realizing God will send, not just allow, but he will send hard times upon his children, not because he hates them, Not because he doesn't know they're there, but because he wants to mold us and shape us in the image of his son. And that his end goal for our lives is far greater for his glory than what you and I think, know, or sometimes even hope. And we want the end goal to be comfort. We want it to be pleasure. We want it to be happiness. But what do you do when the father says in his word, I'm going to discipline everybody I love. And everybody that are my children, all Christians, are therefore going to be disciplined. And of course, we see in the gospel that if Jesus goes through what he goes through, and there's a purpose for that, how much more is he going to discipline those being conformed in the image of his son? And so, the context again tonight for these verses is that fathers discipline the imagery that we see goes back not just through verses 3 through 11 like we covered last week, but verses 1 and 2 in the beginning of Hebrews 12. And the imagery is that of a race. Remember the great cloud of witnesses we have, those Old Testament saints and the author saying, I know you're tired, I know you're, you're feeling worn out, but we are running a race in Christ. And so we're going to pick that imagery back up tonight as he is addressing these folks again. And the end result that he wants us to understand is that we have a beautiful view of God's grace through the discipline of the Father. Does that make sense? So right now it's hard for us to put those two together, grace and discipline. But it's going to be a beautiful meshing, and I I believe that God's going to do that. The question, and I'm going to spin, I'm going to, because this is a little bit difficult for us, I'm going to spend a little more time in the intro than normal. Um, So don't worry, we're going to get to the text soon enough. But the question that you and I really, we have to answer up front because it's going to drastically impact how we understand the rest of this and whether you walk out of here hating my guts or not, which could very well happen. Um, and it wouldn't maybe be the end of the world, but I don't, I don't want you walking out of here hating God. And so the question you have to answer is, how do you view God's discipline? How do you take correction? Some of us have called ourselves believers for a long time, but we are not teachable. We, we make excuses for hardship in our life that God wouldn't do that to us. We couldn't understand or believe a God who would let bad things happen to his children. And it will mess up your entire faith. So how do you view discipline? You know we want God to do good things with bad stuff, right? What happens in tragedy when, when someone passes away, um, maybe just out of the blue? And as a believer, I'm assume most of you are. What do you? What, what's one of the first prayers you pray, knowing that there's lots of non-believing family and friends who are going to be at that funeral? Man, 
for the glory of God. God used this to reach them. Yet when we think of hard stuff happening to us, we're not thinking, God, use that sin that to discipline me, to mold me. We don't pray that one. But we'll say all day long, God, when tragedy hits other people, use it to bring good. And God's saying, I do that to you, young man. I do that to you. And so we might even ask, well, you know what? I'm going to argue, why, why do we need discipline? I mean, you're either saved or you're not. It's one thing to ask God to use something to bring non-believers to him, but why, why do we need discipline? Well, if you remember back in Hebrews chapter 5, the author says in verse 8 that, um, speaking in relation to Jesus, he says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. But in chapter 4, he said Jesus is perfect. So what in the world does Jesus, who is perfect, he's a son, he's in the family, why would he need to learn obedience when he's already perfect? And the point is that God was doing something even through Jesus who was perfect. He was was teaching him and showing him further obedience through what he suffered. And so if he's going to do that to Jesus, <laughs> how much more do we need that in our own lives? You see, and I, I, we've got to make sure, this is why I have to park on this stuff, because I don't want anyone leaving with a misunderstanding of the gospel. If you leave here tonight and you say, well, um, it, Jesus did take the punishment for our sins, but God's going to punish me for stuff, for, for, for my sins, um, because it is just the way that discipline works. No. You can say wholeheartedly and accurately, and the author has told us that Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus is that he took the full punishment, the wrath of God for all sin, okay? He died once and for all, for the sins of many. And so he's not punishing you for the consequences of sin. He's allowing hardship for the sake of training and educating and molding you and deepening your faith and strengthening you, knowing that there is a journey for believers and there's a molding that takes place. It happens. But the good news is that as we tackle this issue, it also helps you to understand some other hard-to-understand passages, like uh, one in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 8. I'm going to paraphrase this, but Paul says, Brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant to the fact that we suffered through all kinds of junk in the province of Asia to the point to where we despaired life and wanted death. But then he tells us in verse 9 and 10, he says, But it was so that we could essentially press in so that we would submit to the Father who raises people from the dead. So he's saying, we went through a whole bunch of junk as children of God, as missionaries, for the sake that we would rely on God and not on our own strength. That's why for those who say, God would never give me more than I can handle, they they haven't read the Bible. He's always going to give you more than you can handle so that you rely on him. And and then you look at, oh, here's one that is all kinds of messed up. You you know this one, but you don't ever want to talk about it, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, remember the Lord's Supper thing? Like the Corinthians, they're these new believers, but they're still living crazy lifestyles. And so then they're all getting drunk when they're taking the Lord's Supper. And I mean, could you picture what would, could you picture the cross pointers getting hammered on our grape juice? Like that, that would be crazy. And yet that's who Paul's writing to saying, that's not the way to do it. I think you're missing the boat. And he tells them in one verse, he says, 
because they, they didn't know what they were doing. This is why some of you are weak, sick, and have fallen asleep. You know what fallen asleep means? This is why some of you are dead. that raises even more crazy questions like does God's discipline go to the extent that he would let us die and this is where I'm telling you what church you got to be sold out that the purpose of your life is to bring God glory no matter what it looks like because even for those Corinthians taking the Lord's Supper and being disciplined through that to the point of being sick and weak and God's like I'm trying to get your attention here and some of them even dying, that in their dying, that they would be so sold out with childlike faith to be brought to a trust and a dependence on the Father, understanding that it's even leading them to death. The Father telling us, you will be with me forever because of what my Son has done for you and what you believe. On earth, those who are mature, those who are growing in their faith understand that no matter what happens, that if the purpose of it is that we would be drawn to our knees, even sick and puking and being led to death, but in that moment of sweet death, we are not falling into more mistakes, but simply bowing at the feet of Jesus. That You can read that and say, how could he let him die? Or you could read that and say, man, if it takes a little bit of junk to make people bow, to Jesus, maybe that's better. And only those who have experienced the freedom of Jesus know that it would be better to get sick and bow at his feet just to die than to live a life living in the same sin, running around doing the same stuff. And say, God's good because he hasn't called me on it. Now, this past weekend I was sicker than a dog. And in the past, I would have maybe said, explain that sickness away. Oh, it just happens. But I was ticked. You see, over the years, as God has called me to teach and preach a little bit, and hopefully I'm decent eh, for your sake, you find the more that you teach, preach, and lead, that you have more nooks, crannies, and crevices for pride to creep in than you ever could have imagined. You didn't even know you had that many opportunities for pride. You don't even think you have it. But like if I sat down and just explained to you all of the areas that I fall short, it would be overwhelming to me and I wouldn't even know where to start in the sanctification process. Thank God for his spirit. And it all came to a head Monday morning because I came and I took that sermon that I was going to preach to y'all on Sunday because Andy was gone this week. He'll be back this week. Don't worry. You can come back to church. I took that sermon that I put all those hours into, and I filed it away, never to be preached again. I don't know, but it seemed like I wasted my time. And I was talking to God about it, and I was angry that he would even have me, number one, prepare that, knowing I wasn't going to preach it. Number two, that he would let me get sick, knowing I had a 24-hour bug, but the first 12 hours, like, you ain't getting out of bed kind of thing. Like, you can get up and preach in some sickness a whole bunch of times, but, like, this is the kind of sickness that you, a couple people might get saved, but everyone's going to get sick and die if you preach this. <laughs> like, you, you can't. This microphone would have to be burned afterwards. You can't do it. And so I knew I, I couldn't. I, I can't do it. 
And I was angry, and I was talking to him, and I was just like, you know what? Let's just, let's just talk, God. I'm angry. I'm angry because we had a ton of people in church, and I love it when people can come and hear the gospel. And it stinks that I didn't get to preach to him because I wanted to preach to him. And my heart was telling me, I don't want to say it, but my heart was telling me, you think God needs you? You think that, you think that he, you're the one who grows the church? And so it's crazy that there's 60, 70 more people there on a weekend you're gone than when you're there? You, you think that you are something special? That like he, he, he needs you to preach that message? God whispering to me through his word and through my conscience is saying, young man, sometimes the sermons you prep are for you alone. And I don't need you. And I said, but I want to be needed. And he said, in Jesus, I love you. But I don't need you. And you don't ever need to be needed. Is my love enough? I was like, I don't know. at first I didn't even want to start writing this next message because I was throwing a pity party. So I saved you to joyfully serve me even if nobody ever sees you serve me in any capacity. When did you get to be on such a high horse? And he, he rebuked me. He corrected me. Is this anyone's view of Jesus? Like, would this happen to any of us? Because as much as he's going to tell you, I love you, I got mercy, I got grace, he's going to tell you some of this hard stuff too. It's all the same Jesus. So, I say all that to say, if we get our minds right in how we view the Father's discipline, that he loves us, it's for our good, he doesn't do it with a vengeful heart, He's not taking out punishment for our sins on us, but he's molding us, he's growing us, and he sees his end result is better than what we can imagine. Then he gives us, the author, six exhortations, six encouragements uh, here, and you'll see them spread sporadically throughout these next five or six verses. So uh, let's jump on in and spend the rest of our time walking through these few verses. Hebrews 12, verses 12 and 13 say, Therefore... Bible students, do you see a therefore? What's it there for? So it always connects us back to the previous passage, which was on discipline. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. All right, let's park there. The first thing we see is that God's discipline, this, this race we're running, provides a little bit of spiritual exercise. You see, verses 10 and 11 last week, as we closed out, told us that the end result of the Father's discipline should not be to make us despise it. And now the author's saying it should also be that it doesn't make you faint under it. So your response is not to despise the Father's discipline, even though it's hard, and it's definitely not to faint under it. You see, here in 
verse 12, the context for this. These, these might seem like random words. It gives the imagery of, again, a runner who's just tired and exhausted. But the imagery also is taken from Isaiah 35, where Isaiah is telling them in verses 3 and 4, he, he's encouraging, he's trying to lift up those who are fearful. Remember, the Hebrews, they are persecuted, and they're fearful to keep on walking in their faith because they see other people dying, and they see the persecution getting worse, and they're tired. And then part of this context is also from Proverbs chapter 4 as well. But it says here to take this weak person, this one who's like, I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm burnt out. I can tell him to make the, pa- the path straight. But here at the end, this is, this is, let's not miss this. It says, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. So you understand This is God's discipline, some of this hardship that you're getting. This isn't just random. This isn't God being like, oh, something bad's happening. Maybe I'll try to make the most of it. No, it's a surgeon saying, I'm going to cut so that I can heal. It's God's intention. He gave it to you. But if we don't get it, it might keep on happening. So that what is lame may be may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Don't keep on just questioning and wondering and saying, I don't know what it is. I'll just get angry at God for letting bad stuff happen. No, take it as discipline and keep on walking. He might keep trying to get your attention, and it might continue. So the the bottom line is that the Hebrews are spiritually exhausted. They've been running this race, and they are tired. They've been persecuted, and they're tired. They've had to to, to give up their homes, their property. They've been mocked. They've been ridiculed. He said last week, hey, not to the point of shedding blood, but y'all, you've faced some persecution, and they're just tired. Doesn't anyone know what that feels like to be spiritually worn out? Just to be exhausted. They need some renewed hope. They they need to retread those tires. And i got to believe some of us tonight might be just as tired. Our race might look a little bit different than theirs 2,000 years ago, but we might be just as tired and worn out. But in order for us to get stronger we got to understand discipline and what it wants to accomplish, just like lifting weights. You, you, you push through, you push through, you push through, and then you break barriers and you keep on walking and something is being molded and formed, but you can't stop at those breaking points. You can't go backwards. you got to keep on moving forward. It's spiritual exercise when we get discipline from the Father. But some of you all know, <laughs> if you're anything like me, like, like I, 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 I'm the kind of guy who, if I exercise, I'm going to do it alone. I'm going to be like, you know what? I'm a self-starter. I got initiative. Let's do this. I don't want anyone else around me. I want to be by myself. And that's great. Problem is, I don't exercise anymore. So that's not working out very well, is it? That would be wonderful if I still exercise. And so what do we know you probably need if you're going to do this long term? Because this race isn't an overnight thing. It's a marathon. You need a running partner. You need a running partner. I remember when we went to seminary and we were in Virginia and we got uh, hooked up with this church 45 minutes out in the middle of nowhere up in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And one of my friends who we met, family from Mississippi, he was a preacher. Like he could, he could just preach it down. He was a preacher. And he got a job out there leading this church. Now this church started in 1775. So Crosspoint, we were six years old, right? 
And, and when we left to go to Virginia, we were just one year old. We get out there, we start at this church, we start to be a part of this church that's 236 years old at that time. And it was rough. They had never, for 236 years, done anything other than Sunday school. And they wanted me to come in and initiate a small group ministry. <laughs> you can imagine how well that went. And, and for this preacher, he's all about evangelism. And they, got, they had money in the bank, but they're a group of 50 people. And it's grandma and grandpa, and, and then son and daughter, and then uh, grandkids, and then everyone else. And they're all deacons, and they're all running the church. And there's like two families, and they're like 600 people. You know what it's like? It's one of those deals. Um, so there's 50 people, and if they get a good preacher, then it'll blossom like double overnight. But then go back down when there's any issues. Uh, it's, just, it's just been there. It's a little country church. And I'll tell you what, we got in that. And we tried, we loved those people and we worked with them. And, and in some ways, we just didn't see eye to eye. And so my buddy, he was the pastor and I was just helping to serve. And I remember uh, them just brokenhearted, him and his wife, over and over and over again, spiritually worn and tired because of confrontation he would have, constantly coming up against folks who were saying, well, we never done it that way. And you want to do all this new evangelism stuff. And we, done th- we tried that back in 74 and it didn't work. And we, we did this and just back and forth every day. Sometimes we'd be over at their house till midnight just talking about the stuff that we're dealing with. I remember he got so worn, so spiritually exhausted that one Sunday we show up and like he, he's in tears, a full-grown man. He was in tears and he was just telling me, finally I've had it. I'm, I've, I've, I, I can't handle this anymore. He got up and he preached. He preached for like 15 minutes and said, I'm wiping my hands of this. You guys figure out what you're going to do. I'm leaving. Walked off the stage, packed up his stuff, moved back to Mississippi. We all just looked around. Maybe he needed more friends. <laughs> like, something, like, do we see that something isn't right? That the pastor of the church is so spiritually worn out because he's fighting with the people he's supposed to be running with? Something's wrong. Either he's wrong, or we're wrong, or we're all wrong. But something's wrong. Who's your running partner? And better yet, because some of you, you got spiritual running partners. you got people that you can lean on. That you don't have to get up and just walk out and say, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. I've been talking to Jesus, but nobody else around me. Like, I got no support system. Some of you have support systems, at least in your mind. But here's the better question. Do they actually point you to Jesus? I'm not talking about your mama, your cousin, your friends, friend, who will listen to you and let you gripe and complain a little bit, but don't ever point you to Jesus. I'm not talking about someone to lean on. I'm talking about people who say, we're going to walk in this together. Here's the good news of Jesus. We're going to immerse ourselves in truth when we're together. I'm going to remind you of this truth. You've got to remind me. Sometimes I forget about it, but we're going to do this together. I need you. You need me. We're going to fight a little bit, but we need each other. Like, Do you, do you have a running partner? Because this isn't written to one person. It's written to the church. If you don't want drooping hands and weak knees, you've got to be helping each other out. Spiritual exercise. Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone 
and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. All right. Second thing we see is the straight path. So he says, you need a straight path for your feet. And now he gives us two of those exhortations of what that straight path looks like. If you go back to last week in verse 10 and 11, he said that the fruit of discipline, when you take that correction well from God, no matter how hard it is, but you say, okay, God's he's growing me, he's doing something in me. He said it's a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Peace and holiness. These are the two things he says I'm going to focus on. And this is what the straight path looks like. So remember, I don't, I don't want to get I don't want to get far away from the context, even though there might be some some other things we can talk about in this. But remember, these folks who are facing persecution, for them, peace. Peace is general. In this verse, it's not, well, peace with, and then very specific. No, it's everyone. So for them, I imagine part of it is maybe a little bit of infighting, maybe struggling with purity. There's a, might be, but they were struggling with the world. They were struggling with peace with outsiders, people who were persecuting them. Probably a lot of Jewish folks, um, they, they were struggling with that. He's saying, you need, to, you need to be peacemakers. You need to, to be walking, knowing you're going to get shot at, but you need to be seeking peace. Christians, it's not that we're not confrontational. It's just that we're confrontational about the right stuff and in the right ways. Some of us get that wrong. We stand up for the wrong stuff in the wrong ways. We find ourselves causing more harm than good. He calls us to be peacemakers. You see, when hardship comes into the church, when it comes into the church, it makes tensions run high. Like when God squeezes on you a little bit, it's tempting to be looking out for number one, right? And so you start to bark at those around you. You can, you can get upset a little bit. Like, okay, maybe I know God's doing something. I don't want to talk about it. Just get off my back. Like so, you know, you ever been there? And so you start barking at those closest to you. What about y'all? Are you barking at those trying to correct you right now? Some of you, you know, you got, you got loving people, people who are following Jesus, and they're, they're helping you to maybe see the error of your ways a little bit, and you're just like, I don't, don't want to hear it. Everyone's got ex-boyfriend and ex-girlfriend syndrome. Okay, I loved you back then. Now we're not together. You don't play that role anymore. Don't try to teach me about correction. Don't, I'm not, I can hear it from someone, but not from you. you got to be careful because it's going to reflect some nastiness inside. Some of us just have some unpeaceful spirits, and that is not going to be the path that he wants us on. I remember when we first started, uh, well, the second church that we were a part of planting, um, I remember I was ministering to this gal in the church. Her husband didn't go, but her and her kids came to the church, and they were going through some financial struggles. And so her prayer requests and her advice, all the stuff that she was needing, like, it all revolved around financial decisions. And then I didn't see her for a little bit, and, and I was praying for her. And uh, as a young pastor, man, I'll just, I could be old. This is going to be the case. You just slip up sometimes. And for me, I talked to her one day, and she had just bought, they had just bought a brand new truck. And so prayer requests and advice and counsel over and over and over about financial struggles, and, and they bought, they're losing their job, can't seem to find anything. They just bought a new truck. 
And then she calls me to talk about other things and struggles. And I, I was like, gosh, is anything getting through? And I was trying to be cordial on the phone. And finally, I just said, are you praying <laughs> about any of these financial decisions? And it seemed to go over well. And she didn't, she didn't bark at me then. And I said probably another thing or two about making sure that we're praying and talking to God, that he's the one leading us into this. And we got off the phone, and I knew something wasn't quite right in my heart, but I was like, eh, I'm, tick- I'm just irritated. Well, before you know it, man, I'm getting phone calls. Other people are telling me, hey, so-and-so, they're not coming back to the church. They're leaving. They're gone. Family, they hate you. You're so mean on the phone. Like, I thought it, I thought it went pretty well. Um, it was 50-50, honestly, in my mind, like in terms of I think I ministered well. Now they're not coming back. I don't know what that means. But they were ticked. She was ticked. And I thought about it. And you got to understand, when we, sometimes pastors, sometimes you can group together a little bit and, and kind of defend each other and stick up for each other and fight. Uh, whenever anyone fights against you, it's like an automatic assumption that we're correct, right? And so we can just beat the Bible over people's heads. And like, sometimes there's that camaraderie that's unhealthy that happens. And I saw that early in ministry, and I didn't want that. I didn't want to be the pastor who was sticking up for myself all the time, right? And I remember God just saying, like, you remember in that phone call, when your heart wasn't quite right, and you might have asked the right thing, but you definitely did it in the wrong way. And I don't know how it came across to her. It obviously did not come across well. But I remember my heart wasn't right. And I came up to her, and I said, listen, I want you to get plugged into a local church. Blessings, so this is not about you coming back here. But I want you to know what I did was wrong and I knew it was wrong and here's how it was wrong. My heart wasn't right and I shouldn't have butt in in the way that I did. I said, I'm going to love you. I'm going to correct you. I'm gonna, but we do that together. We do that for each other. And the way I did it, it was not right. I said, you just need to know God has convicted me of that and I'm repenting of that. They came back to the church. They became a big part of it. And they still are. But that wasn't the point of why I talked to her. I knew I had to humble myself. And I knew that if I fought for myself and my pride would just woo, 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 woo. I knew that peace was not going to be the end result. That it was just going to be more and more and more of a mess. Yet how often do we do that? Because we get backed into a corner from our own lack of personal holiness. And so then, boom, we're not peacemakers. We're just bomb throwers trying to get ourselves out of what our impurities just led us into. And God says, you gotta, you got to seek peace with everyone. That means, church, you got to humble yourselves. That means they might be completely wrong, and it's a two-way street. You're going to have to maybe just man up. I've, I tell you what, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've just listened and said, yeah, yeah. Okay, if, you, if that's the way I came across, I'm not going to fight for myself. It doesn't matter. And I'm not saying, to this, saying this to you as if like, I get it right all the time. But we gotta humble ourselves. We gotta humble ourselves. 
And so then he says, you've got to strive for holiness. This, this means purity of life. This means sanctification. Remember sanctification, big church words talking about conforming to the image of Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, spiritually, you are made perfect. Your soul is made clean. Boom, you've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You die, you go see Jesus in heaven with the Father, all that good stuff. It's in him that you live. All of that happens, but your life on earth will be a process we call sanctification of you becoming more and more and more molded and conformed to the image of Jesus, okay, to the glory of God. So that's what the Christian life is. And so holiness is a big deal. Now, doesn't it sound just like, I mean, just play with me for a bit here. Doesn't it almost sound like strive for and then holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Doesn't it kind of sound a little bit like, like he's saying, you got to act perfect or you ain't going to see God. And I, you, can, you could read that and say, he's not saying that because he's taught throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews. Remember, if you have questions on verses, you see the context that it's in, the passage it's in, you see the book that it's in, and then you take all of scripture into account. And he's taught that it's by the blood of Jesus and Jesus alone that we get to see the Father. And so it's his holiness, his righteousness that's been exchanged for our sin on the cross. We call this the great exchange, our sin for his righteousness. So you might not have it all together today. You might not always act perfect, but you in Christ, the father sees you as he sees his own son. You get that blessing. That's the good news. But when you know that's the truth, and you know in heaven that there will be no sin in the presence of the Father, you know that is what sin does. It separates you from God. You know that Jesus covering your sins, giving you access to the Father, motivates us. And that's what this is. This motivates us to let that process of purification happen in our lives as we walk out this new heart transplant. So it's the motivating factor. That's what it is. And they go hand in hand, peace and personal holiness, peace and sanctification. Remember, this is, this is the end goal for discipline. They go hand in hand <laughs> because sin in the life of a believer doesn't mean you're cast out of God's presence. Again, because Jesus is the one who gave you access to the Father. Sin in the life of a believer, it's been said, and, and we have to be careful with semantics and how we word it. But it can feel like a break in fellowship. Like, like me and my wife, if we're not getting along, we're still married. But you can tell there's some tension in the room. You know what I'm saying? And, and so you can tell when you have sin in the life of a believer and the Holy Spirit convicts you and he's saying, I'm gonna rid, I, want, I want that out of you. Your sins are still forgiven, but you feel just some tension with the Lord. You feel at odds. You feel a lack of peace. Where there is a lack of personal holiness, there's a lack of peace. First, inwardly with God, with other church members, and then with the world. And so the temptation for you and I is if we don't view discipline in a good way, as a good father with a loving purpose, then you will get angry at God and you'll say, why would you do this? How could you let this happen? And you start to see him as the enemy, and then you stop walking and you stop, stop growing. And we've got to be careful. Because that's definitely not the purpose. And he's going to tell us here in a second that all kinds of nasty stuff spread from that. Let me, let me share a quick story. There was a gal who came to the church, one of the church plants, um, and she, she was on fire. She was a brand new believer, but she was on fire. She was in her mid-20s, and she just wanted the Lord. 
And you could tell God was doing something beautiful in her life. But she struggled, like many young women, with some idols. One of them was marriage. She wanted, she grew up in this culture that we have in America that, that says you're going to find your value and your identity, your worth, and what other people say about you. And so marriage is the ultimate stamp of approval. If someone says, I deem you worthy and valuable enough to marry you, therefore, if you don't get married or you get divorced, you lose all your value, worth, and everything else. That's why we've got to find it in Christ and Christ alone, who doesn't leave, who doesn't divorce. And so she had some of these desires, which were noble and healthy to want to be married, but we knew them, and we knew that she might be willing to compromise. She might be willing to, to be with the wrong people because she had that pressure on her. But we saw God working in her, and she said, I want to I go be part of the next plant. So she came, and she was part of the next plant. We were a small team, and we, we developed. I mean, we moved out there together. She lived in our basement for a while, um, and she found her another place. And, like, we, we had developed a family bond. We were all far from family trying to plant the gospel with just four of us in this new city. And for the first few months, we could tell she was doing all right. Being away from family was a healthy thing. But we could tell some of those temptations, some of those idols, they were creeping up a little bit. And undealt with, they will always give you a bad view of discipline. Because if you sense that God's trying to keep you from something that will ultimately make you happy, which is an unbelief in the gospel that something other than Christ will ultimately make us happy, you're going to get angry at God. Why would you withhold marriage from me if this is what's going to make me happy? And Jesus is like, you don't have a clue what's going to make you happy. I'll give you joy. You're You're settling. Anyway, at first, we could just tell there's turmoil in her own heart. We could just tell being around her, we're like, hey, what's going on? Uh, nothing. Everything's fine. But then she stopped showing up as much, and we're like, okay, something's wrong here. And then we heard about some of the stuff she was doing. We're like, okay. All of a sudden, before you know it, she's dating someone. She's moved in with them. One of those guys who says they are a Christian. Ladies, you know. <laughs> you know when you shouldn't be with someone. Because if you're going to date someone, you need to have some kind of idea that you might marry them. And you ain't going to marry a non-believer or a nominal Christian member. We don't get married based on potential. We get married based on what they're walking in right now. And if it ain't Jesus wholeheartedly, as much as you and I are going to, it ain't going to be God's will. And she knew that. And so she just hated being around church people because she thought, man, we're going to somehow, and we, we loved on her. We supported, but we couldn't go places in her life. We couldn't, we couldn't ask about certain things. And, and then before you knew it, the whole church, we were walking on eggshells every time we were around her. So the inward peace, the lack of purity started to lead to a lack of peace with everyone around her. And I could tell you, I could go on. By the time we left that church, there was such tension and sadness that all she could do was sit across the table from me. And I said, I just want to, I just want to be your friend. I just want to, I just want to shepherd. I just want to help. Just, I know as tears just pour out. She's distanced herself. She's living with some random dude. She's distanced herself, and I wish I could tell you, like, oh, this is how the story goes, and it's amazing, there's redemption. You want to know how the story goes? The story is exactly where it was. And in the midst of that, she saw everything bad. I got financial troubles. My, my job at, 
um, isn't that great? And I go, everything that was happening now is bad, and it's God hates me, God hates me, God hates me, because she believed one lie that God hates me, and he won't give me marriage, and marriage is somehow, again, better than Jesus. And it all started to spiral. And the author's saying, you've got to strive for peace and personal holiness, because if you lose these things, you will be a mess. And so see to it, in verse 15, that no one fails. This is, this is crucial, okay? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Discipline is God's grace. This is why I say Jesus is full of grace, because the Father is full of discipline. This is a form of grace. The verse almost seems out of place, doesn't it? Like, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You and I, we know grace by nature, by definition, is something we can't earn. So how could we fail to obtain it? Well, the question of how do we view God's grace, excuse me, God's discipline, answers the question as to whether we fail to obtain it. Because if you, in your discipline, view God as the enemy and, hey, this can't be, God wouldn't do this to me, God's mean, you will fail to obtain his grace because his grace is the discipline. And so if you don't see the discipline as something a loving father does because he loves you and has a plan for you, then you fail to obtain that grace. And what happens when you fail to obtain it? You become bitter and it spreads throughout all those who are around you. You see, incredibly important spiritual things are forged in hardship. And when it comes to the Father's discipline, especially if you're these people, if you're the Hebrews, and he's saying, my discipline isn't just a little whack, it's persecution. I led, it, I led you into it. Remember, the discipline the Hebrews are facing would never have happened if they didn't follow Jesus. They're not being persecuted because they're meanies. They're being persecuted because they follow Jesus. And in that hardship, you either cling to God and you say, I need you and I recognize this is happening. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deepen. I'm going to walk. I'm going to cling to you. I'm going to fight you. There's no middle ground in the Lord's discipline. God's not wimpy to where he's going to discipline you enough to where you can stay lukewarm. But he's going to get your attention. And so it says, see to it, meaning that corporately, you and I, this member written to the church, see to it, see to it. So not just one of you in your own lives, personally, in your own relation, no, see to it, the church. It's our job together to help each other to see God's discipline in each other, right? And, and to see that it's for the good. But I'm telling you what, you know it, you know it, this scares us to death because we are so scared to sit across from one another and to take a stand and say, maybe this is happening because God is disciplining you. Oh, that, that's not fun. Now we're the Bible thumpers. Now we're the meanies. I don't want to wreck this relationship. I'm just going to tell him that it's, it's God's good. You'll get through. There's t- I mean, sometimes that's exactly what you need to say. But if that's all you ever say, then they're going to fail to obtain the grace of God because you didn't tell them this discipline was discipline and they couldn't see this discipline as grace. 
Sometimes you and I mislead each other because we simply tell each other, get through it. Just get through it. And God's like, don't get through it without recognizing the purpose and the pain. Otherwise, I'm just going to lead you into something else. But we're so scared of risking our reputations with each other that we don't want to be the bad guy. We don't want to be bad cop. Because how dare there be anything wrong with us enough to where God would have to discipline his children. If I say that's discipline, I'm saying there's something wrong with you and that might make things weird between us. God wants a church that loves each other and gives grace and shows that grace comes sometimes in hard ways. Some of us, the reason we don't help each other to see God's grace through discipline is because we misunderstand grace. We see God's grace as a free pass. But God's grace is his hand extended down to us saying, I'm fighting for you. I'm doing something in you. My presence is here. I, I, like, I'm not unaware of this hardship. I actually caused it. The gift is the presence. But you and I, because we grow up eh, eh, with unspiritual minds, as unspiritual people, and not understanding God's grace, it's so easy for us to believe grace is simply God giving us a, hey, you got a free pass. You can do, remember Paul addressed that kind of abuse of grace. And so we don't even think of discipline as grace, and so we wouldn't tell anyone else that. I'm telling you what, this is why theology is so crucial for us. You might say, well, theology is boring. No, our understanding of God will always determine the way we live out our faith. Let me give you, let me give you a weird example. I might be taking a risk by saying this. In, in, one, of, uh, in one of the church plants, the local pastors, we had some folks who were living um, super rebellious lifestyle. Not any more rebellious than you and I, but like on a... Hmm. They were blatantly going from church to church saying we're going to live a specific lifestyle that is taboo and you can't call us out unless you want a really bad reputation. And they were, they were rubbing it in the faces of the leadership. And they would blast you on Facebook if you called them out. They'd go on to the next church and they would do it. And, they would, and so we got together. We were talking about, what do we do? Like, how do we give God's grace? How do we show God's grace? How, how, when someone comes in to a worship service knowing, like, we're, we're a covenant community. Like, we're not just random people getting together to hear a, a sermon to be fed. We're a covenant community where we together choose to follow a, a righteous God and to be walking in righteous ways. How, how, how do we handle, and this is a big question we can't answer right now, but I wanted to put you in our mind so that you can struggle with the awkwardness that we had to, right? Because that's fun, right? We're, we're sharing in the sufferings together. If someone comes in and says, I'm waving my flag of sin, I'm going to wave it in your face, but I want to come and I want to listen to the sermon. How long do you let them come hang out before that arrogance and blatant sin rubs off on the people who actually want to follow Jesus. Now many would say that the showing of grace 
comes in that you let them sit. You let them, as long as they want to, be a part of it so that they can hear the gospel. How many of you would fall on that end of it? Like, let everyone in. We're, we all got sin. We're all messed up, right? Let everyone in. Who are, we, who are we to say that no one can be there? Remember, there's a big difference between sinning and then blatantly sinning with no desire of repentance. Okay, that's a whole other ballgame. And that's what we were dealing with. But me, being the meanie, said, we got to have great discernment as to when to confront them about the message they're hearing. And there has to be a confrontation. Not like a fight, but a let's talk about this. Because you can't just hang out here forever in a covenant community rubbing this in their face. Couple, couple of them like, see, I knew you're a Baptist. You don't know nothing about grace. That was the attitude. My attitude is y'all don't know much about grace. Because the grace of God is as much you sit here and listen, no matter what's happening in your life, no matter what brokenness you're experiencing, you can listen even in your blatant rebellion. You can hear this good news that we want the whole world to hear. But there's also just as much grace in saying, let's talk about what you've been hearing for the last. And let's make a decision. Did you see these folks here? They made a decision to follow. And God said, you've got to stand and protect them, make sure there isn't wolves around here trying to mess with them. So I love you, and I want you to have what they have. But if you're here just to stir things up, it ain't going to happen. And how many of us in our heart are like, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like grace. But that's grace. You see, the people who don't view a God theologically as someone who would put hardships on his own children would never view that kind of discipline as a form of grace. They would never understand that a surgeon makes a cut to make someone whole and heal them fully. That leads to a group of people who don't ever experience true healing. Last but not least, verses 16 and 17. I'll make this quick. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So remember Esau, Jacob, birthright, Isaac, father, gives it to Jacob. Jacob was a little bit of a punk. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. This is scary. This is scary. You got, this is scary. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The last thing we see is the unfortunate result of spiritual apathy. This is not what we want. This is not what we want, but this is what happens. When Esau is born with a birthright, knowing I am going to inherit the promises of God, and he lives his whole life as this hairy dude who is consumed with hunting and getting his own, and he, he's, just, he's just living his life, and he's marrying who he wants. He does his own thing, and he's so unconcerned with the promises of God that when he gets hungry, he sells it 
for a bowl of soup. That's what happens when you live your entire life with promptings from God saying, I'm getting your attention, I'm getting your attention, turn to me, turn to me. And you say, I'll do it later. I'll do it at the end. I'll get right with God at the end of this whole thing, right? How many times do we find out you don't always have a shot at that? And something incredibly important happens. He gets to that point and he finds, even with tears, that he can't change it. That Isaac is sitting there saying, I can't, I can't change it. The father can't change it. I don't want us to get this wrong. I don't want us to get this wrong. God will always forgive those who repent and turn to Christ. He will always. But for those of us who hear the prompting of God and deny it over and over and over with the knowledge that there is beauty on the other side of repentance. And yet, I'm not going to get to it right now because I'm choosing my bowl of soup. That when you get so consumed with your bowl of soup, although the more you eat it, the more bitter and unfulfilling it tastes, you start to lose the desire to repent. It's not that God doesn't want you to repent. It's that you put it off and you squelch the Holy Spirit so much that you don't even have the fire anymore. That you can't even hear the the small, still voice of the Lord anymore. Some of you know what I'm talking about because he's asking us to do stuff and then we don't do it. And now we come and we say, Pastor, I don't think I even hear from God much anymore. And he's saying, I talked to you six months ago about turning from this. And I've been telling you over and over. And when you ignore my voice, it becomes a distant sound to the stuff you're allowing in your mind. author saying if you don't understand the purpose of God's discipline you can become bitter and resentful to the point to where you don't even want to turn to him it doesn't say he turned to God it's just sad that he didn't get the blessings So let me end with this question. What's your bowl of soup tonight? What's your bowl of soup that he's been telling you about for a long time? And right now, it looks like the most important thing in your world. But it ain't nothing compared to the promises of God. you keep diving into that bowl of soup you're going to get sick you're going to view God as the enemy and you're not going to have the desire to repent but Jesus in the fullness of his grace says church when the father lets hardship come it's the father's heart saying, press into me, come into me. I know it hurts, but the end goal is that we're together and that you're growing in me 
and that you're found in me and that you press into me and that you are stronger in me and that you're finding your faith deepening in me because you're going to see me face to face one day and right now you're just getting prepped for seeing me face to face and I'm making you, I'm preparing you to the time right now. I'm getting you to the place to where you know a little bit more. You taste it. You can taste it on earth. It's so much better than that soup. You can taste my goodness and my presence. That that bowl of soup real quick is going to be sick to you because God's grace is so good. But you got to turn to him. This is hard for the church. But it's true. Jesus is full of grace. Sometimes it's in hardship. Let's pray.